Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello, my name is Meredith Jaffe, and I'm thrilled to be taking you over the convo couch again this week on Rights for Women. One of the things I love to do, and particularly today, and that's interview a fellow author who's also a dear friend of mine, that is Suzanne Leal. Suzanne is the author of the novels Running with Ivan, The Teacher's Secret, Border Street and The Deceptions, for which she won the NIB People's Choice Award prize and was shortlisted for the David Awards and the Mark and Everett Moran Nib Literary Award. A lawyer experienced in child protection, criminal law and refugee law, Suzanne is a senior member of the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal and former member of the Refugee Review Tribunal. She is the former Chair of Fiction and Poetry Panel for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards and a Board Director of the Bad Crime, Sydney Crime Writers, oh, say that again, Meredith, and a Board Director of the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and online host of Thursday Book Club, Suzanne Leal, welcome. Oh, it's so nice to be here with you, Meredith. It's like we're in the same room, isn't it? I know. (laughs) We've done a lot of that in our time. First of all, Congratulations on the upcoming release of The Watchful Wife. It's a terrific, twisty read. And to set the scene for this conversation, I thought you could begin by telling us a little bit about the story. Thanks so much, Meredith. Okay, so The Watchful Wife is the story of Ellen Wells, who's a sheltered woman who's grown up in the shadow of a very conservative fundamentalist church where enjoyment really isn't the the top of the lists. There's no dancing, no cinema, and uh, very modest dressing. She's a a bit of an outsider, and I wanted to explore that characteristic of her before she finds happiness with a fellow teacher called Gordon. The book opens, though, when Gordon is arrested for a crime he swears he didn't commit. That's a lovely summary. Let's delve a little deeper into Ellen's life. As you say, she grew up with strict parents who were active members of an ultra-conservative church called the Free Church of Kirkton. Now, your father was a theologian, I believe, and you're a lawyer by trade. What drew you to write about this world? Mm. Look, I've always been interested in religion and religious institutions and how the structures work and how it works on the inside. So, as you said, my dad was a theologian. And we were involved, and I continue to be involved, in a very progressive church, so almost the opposite to the church that Ellen finds herself in. And I do think that those communities that are closed are really interesting. They're almost like a set piece in themselves because the limits of the community and you can watch how people move within it. And I think also I've been interested in what happens when an organisation is so strict and so austere that anyone involved in the organisation becomes alienated from society in general. And how does a child deal with it? 
how does a child who has to wear an ankle length tunic to skirt to school when everybody else has got theirs above the knees, how does she fit in a society that thinks that she's quite odd? And is there something there about the tensions between faith and law and order as well? Yeah, I love I love the comparison between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So there is horrifically violent stories in the Old Testament. And what's always made me laugh is that how sometimes these are the stories that are taught to kids in Sunday school. Now, I remember it's brutal stories being told to me in graphic detail. And so I was interested in the idea of the wrathful God and the wrathful minister who focuses on that fire and brimstone Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament where forgiveness and understanding takes the front seat. Look, it's a lot of fun writing about the Old Testament when you can really burrow in and find the most extraordinary stories. JL was the one I liked the best about the prophet who nails a man's head with a tent peg. It's not funny, but it's gruesome and a gruesome scene for a Sunday school lesson. And I think obviously, and we'll delve into this a little bit later, but it also really makes the reader think about what faith means in its in its religious context, but in its broader social context as well, doesn't it? In the acknowledgements, you thank the Reverend Anne Ryan, and that led me to think about the world-building aspects of this novel. As we know, a story just can't be plonked down in any old landscape. It has to live and breathe and feel authentic, be part of that landscape. What research did you have to do to make Ellen's world make sense to the reader and not feel like a, a caricature or a damnation even of an alternative religious world? Over my life, I've known a number of people who have had childhoods in a variety of quite closed and conservative churches. And I've watched them and I've watched the adults that they've become. Um, I've spoken to them about the legacies of such a faith, which is not just a, a difficult legacy, but can also bring a whole lot of advantages, like being very, very work-focused and having a strong ethic and having a tight community. So I suppose observation was a big thing. I also attended a particularly conservative church, which has similar services to those that I described in the Free Church of Kirkton. So there's no music, there's just a cantor that gives a note. All the music is psalms, there's nothing else. There is, there's no involvement of women in the services themselves, and there is nothing decorated in the church. It's completely austere. So even just spending an hour and a half or two hours listening to a service then and the thing that most astonished me was the kids who had to had gone from Sunday school to come into the church and were tiny. Some of them were six or seven and they were absolutely silent. So just watching how discipline is used in such a church gave me a, a really strong vision of who Ellen might be and what her upbringing might have looked like. Interesting. Ellen becomes a high school English teacher. You've written a story in this world before, The Teacher's Secret, and there are some common elements between the two stories. Did you have any reservations about setting a second story in this world? And if so, what were they? It's interesting. I like school 
settings. I know them well. I have four children and I've spent, I think, something like 25 years all up in the local primary school as a parent. I, I may be exaggerating, but not very much. And I like to see how things work between parents, between students, with teachers. And in The Teacher's Secret, I focused on a primary school. I've moved on, I think, from that in The Watchful Wife to focus on secondary schools. And I think that this is interesting because the kids are different. The kids are growing up. They're reaching adolescence. There's more clicks. There's, there's pushing of boundaries. And I thought that was a good place for Ellen to work within. She loves being a teacher. She loves learning. She loves sharing her learning. But she's still a bit of an odd woman. And I wanted to see how that would work in a school where sometimes kids can be unforgiving. And I think also in Ellen's case, like moving from such a strict environment within the family home and escaping that in the sense that she gets an apartment of her own and she's got her own money, she's teaching, she's doing a job that she's passionate about is a really important stepping stone for her. But yet still provides her with the sort of parameters, the safety of knowing there's rules and regulations and a way about this world that I guess in a way feels oddly familiar. Is that a fair comment? I think so. I think look, I'm probably someone who really likes routine as well. The idea of getting up, having something planned, finishing it, and then going ahead. And I think that Ellen has always had that. So Ellen's life has been very regimented and very focused on diligence. And to be a teacher, to go from, to spend the whole day there is, is just a, a continuation of that routine. And I think particularly when things aren't going well for Ellen, the routine probably gives her more protection than it does difficulties. Ellen, as you've mentioned before, meets fellow teacher Gordon. It would have been really tempting, wouldn't it, to have made him the complete opposite of Ellen? But he actually shares a lot of values in common, and I guess this is not a doomed love affair in the sense that they are romantically attracted to each other. They both think it's important to be steadfast and true, and stories, of course, are based on conflict and tension. So were you always clear that Ellen and Gordon would be a well-matched pair and therefore that the conflict and tension would come from outside of that relationship? Was that always where you were going to head with this story? I think what I wanted with Ellen and Gordon was to show the conflict in the early parts of their relationship. She's been taught to be very modest and she's been taught that marriage and relationships are only to be had within for members of the same church. So what I was more interested in is an internal conflict with this woman who suddenly finds herself feeling a desire, even a sexual desire for a man, which is nothing she's ever been schooled about. And if she has, she's only been warned about it. So I wanted to watch her coming of age, and it's a late coming of an age. It's almost the coming of age that a teenage or late teenage girls might have, whereas she's in her early, so she's in late 20s, early 30s by the time this happens. I think that was the conflict more than the relationship between them. And I must say, just as an aside for anyone listening who's a budding writer, 
you wrote the sex scenes very delicately as well, which, as we know, is just really hard to write sex scenes full stop. So that I thought you expressed their love for each other, the passion for each other really beautifully on the page as well. Did you struggle or do you struggle? Do you get squirmy writing sex scenes? I think it helped in this book because it's first person. So we're seeing everything from Ellen's perspective. And Ellen wouldn't really have the vocabulary to explain sexual desire in an explicit manner. She's always going to be a little bit hesitant and she's always going to be modest. So I suppose the scenes came relatively easy in that respect because I was in Ellen's head and I knew that Ellen was always going to be holding back and there was that tension of not wanting to give in to sexual desire when that's said to be bad and evil, but biologically and romantically finding that she has no option. So that that's what helped, I think, with the sex scenes. Let's go back to conflict and tension again, and I'm going to try and do this. I'm sure we're going to go and try and do this without giving away any spoilers. We're we're skirting around the major plot issues in some ways. The Watchful Wife is a character-driven novel with a crime at its centre, which, as you alluded to earlier, is in the prologue to the book, so we know there's a crime. In terms of inspiration for the story, which came first for you, the crime or the characters? have a think about that. That's a good question. It's an excellent question. The crime came first, I think. It's I think it's no particular secret that Gordon is accused of a crime that's quite shameful. And I think that the papers are full of such accusations and offences being that have taken place. And when you add to that the fact that the accused person is a teacher, then that becomes even more complicated, I think. And I wanted to explore something that's an allegation rather than I wanted to sorry, I'll do it again. I wanted to explore something that was an allegation and then work it through the legal system. And I didn't want to be too black and white about it. I don't like as a reader being told what to think. I don't like books that are didactic. What I do is books that say why don't we go here? Well, why don't I take you here? And what do you think? I'm not going to tell you what to think, but what do you think? So I think if I, my work is always, I think, about moral complexities and characters who find themselves with moral decisions to make that are not always easy. And I think that's what makes crimes and allegations so interesting because the reader has to make a decision. Is this to be believed? Is this not to be believed? Can this be understood? Is it excusable? What would I do? How would I behave? Yeah, that's a, it leads beautifully into my next question because you are still a practicing lawyer. And if I've read all of your books, and I would characterize your novels as having an incredibly sensitive moral compass. I think some of the praise for The Watchful Wife is inclu- includes words like nuanced, and that's absolutely correct. You are a person who's acutely aware of the subtleties, the shades of grey that surrounds a crime. You know how the criminal system works in this country. But when you're writing, how do you go about being mindful of the important stuff, the bricks and mortar of storytelling, the construct, the, the story construct, the conflict, the tension? 
while staying true to the complexities and messiness of the characters' lives? I mean, this is a bit of a boring answer, but I think using the Scrivener software is helpful for that. Oh. I think visually having a screen in which I have on one side chapter scenes that I can lay out and characters and settings. So visually I can get a, a sense of what the story is looking like just by running, scrolling down to the scenes and then moving them around. So I suppose that in itself helps with the plotting. I, I do plot. I tend to know where things will end and where things will begin, but less so as to how they'll, how they'll develop through the book. Having said that, I wouldn't call myself a pantser. I sit down and I think of what a scene should be achieving and I try and achieve that. In Scrivener, at the top of the scene name will be a brief sentence summary as to what happens. And then when you read those together, you start to get the line of the book. But I think there's, there's no point plotting and no point having a great plot if you don't have the character who is interesting enough to drive it through. So I think it was important to get the voice right for Ellen. And also for me, I wanted it to be a bit dry and a bit funny and a bit quirky. There's a lot of serious stuff we have to deal with in the world at the moment. And there's a lot of serious stuff to do with crime and it's really very funny. So for readers and for me as much as anything else, I thought the way that I was going to lift that and the way that I was going to make this a really accessible book about a woman that hopefully readers will be able to identify with was to make her a bit quirky. The one that comes to mind, and it's, she's not like Ellen, but I really enjoyed was The Voice of the Godmother. It's a book called The Godmother, which is a French book whose author, translator is Stephanie Smee, but the French author, I can't remember. But it's, it's a wry, dry, slightly caustic voice. And that's what I wanted for Ellen, but with some naivety in it as well. So I wanted her to be forthright. I wanted her to be almost Old Testament, but in a devout and, and pretty giving way. And, and that made the book fun. It made the book, once I had her voice and I knew where I was going, it was fun to be her. And I guess you also have the advantage of being married to a criminal barrister. So I guess there was many dinner conversations around, how would this work? And could it go this way? And could it go that way? And even though you're a lawyer yourself, of course, is that it must have been nice to be able to have someone to bounce ideas off or un un unravel plot, knotty plot problems. I reckon that's the best combination, actually, not to actually have to do the criminal work in court day in, day out, but have someone on tap who can tell me what's happened, who with whom I can explain, or he can tell me difficult issues that arise in court, or draw me draw my attention to really interesting and morally complex cases. So yeah, look, I do think I do think having that around the dinner table, whilst perhaps not always appropriate for the eleven year old, is a great gift. <laughs> it's a terrible crime, as you mentioned, yet Ellen believes Gordon despite all supposed evidence to the contrary. She believes Gordon and she believes in Gordon. And what I really liked about this, because Ellen is 
a very sweet character in some ways. Like she's not, we think about characters and our characters have to act, right? They have to solve their own problems. At least from the midpoint of the book onwards, they have to be driving the plot, driving the action rather than being like, oh, poor me. And the fact that she believes in Gordon so much is actually what drives the second half of the book. How difficult was it to make Ellen's chosen course of action to defend and protect Gordon against the allegation feel plausible for her as a character, but I was particularly interested for me as the reader experience. I, you've said that I think perhaps Mark Brandy described the book as nuanced and I'm hoping that's what I did also in that situation because whilst you're right, Ellen does believe in Gordon but I think there are hiccups on the way. I've tried to make them quite subtle, but uh, when the evidence is against someone, it's difficult to maintain an initial belief when everything seems to be against it. And I did want to brushstroke that to say that even someone who is absolutely supportive of their partner can wobble. And but I suppose the second thing that I wanted to do was to talk about what it takes to get through something like this. I've watched to my husband mostly when he's acted for people and sometimes families in court or you get to hear about their families and it just seems very difficult to follow that through. So I wanted to work out what Ellen would need to do just to survive and quite frankly to admit to herself or to even present to herself that he might be guilty isn't going to help her get on with the day-to-day events. She needs to get up. She needs to go to school. She needs to earn money because they've got a mortgage. And it's hard to do that when you're collapsing on the inside. But it also speaks beautifully in the novel to ideas of love, faith, loyalty as well, which are very consistent with Ellen's character. She acts out of love, faith and loyalty to try and save Gordon. And I think for me, I found that gave it a real beating heart to mm. the decisions she makes in the second half of the book, particularly. Mm. Is that Was that front of mind for you? I wanted it to be a love story and I wanted it to be a slightly unusual love story. So a love story for a woman who didn't expect that she would have that because she wasn't the sort of person people fall in love with. And a love story for a man who people might not expect to have fallen in love with someone like Ellen. So the love story was important for me. but And yes, the faith was important as well, but not the overriding importance. What was more important was how is this, what skills has this woman developed over her life to get her through a situation that many people wouldn't be able to manage? How can she do it? Interesting. Now, you touched on the fact that, that you're a bit of a hybrid plot of pantser. I guess maybe you know where it begins and ends. You work out the middle. I, just, I wanted to touch on that again because I think you've created some fantastic twists in The Watchful Wife. And to the point that, I, as I said to you off air, that I gasped at one point. Um, I know, <laughs> don't you love it? You want to make them laugh. You want to make them cry. You want to make them gasp. Job, <laughs> job as authors is huge. 
But I, I just was curious, despite the fact you're saying you've got Scribner and you've got your scenes and all that stuff happening, do these, some of these moments, these twists, these fabulous twists that you have in it, are they stuff that you know is coming or do you enjoy the moment of, or do you have moments of inspiration where you think you're heading in one direction and then you have this br- better idea or what you think is a better idea and off you go off on that direction? Do you have those? Do you allow yourself the freedom to do that? And did you literally have some aha moments about what you could do with the plot? You know what it's like? It's, a, it's like a knot where you just need, like a knot in a jewellery, in jewellery, and you just need to work at it until it loosens itself. So I, I swim in the ocean a fair bit, even now actually, but in a wetsuit. So I've been proud of myself actually getting up and saying, yes, I can do it, going in a wetsuit. The beauty of any swimming, I think, is that there's nothing else to do but swim and think. And that's the time where those knots get loosened. For example, I need to think, how are we going to get to this result? How is it going to work? How far does she go? What would she do? How would she be stopped? And you've got to... Mm-hmm. Readers are clever. Readers are going to watch we're going to find the holes in a plot so you need to make something plausible so i think you get the general idea for me at least and then you think actually that's going to trip up there and then you have to rework it so is it just it's like a road and you come to a dead end and so you just backtrack and find another road until it leads you to the end and i think that is fun because when i haven't got anything to write i get a bit jumpy like even in the shower, because you haven't got something to think about. Whereas if you're in the middle, and you would know this, Meredith, because you're always writing, you write quickly, you've always got something to solve and that keeps you invigorated and it keeps you challenged. So I feel a bit bereft when there's nothing ahead of me because in my quiet times, even though I'm relaxing, I do like that knotting, that unknotting. The subconscious definitely needs something to chew on, doesn't it, when you're so. When you're not at your desk physically writing, it's, yeah. Do you like, wake up, do you go to bed sometimes with a writing problem and wake up with an answer? Yeah. Another thing I find for me is the meditate. I like meditative things. So like you're saying swimming, I think running's another one. I even go for a walk, but knitting is a really good one for me because as well. That, yes. Because you'll suddenly stop in the middle of something and go, Oh, that could happen. And then I, I, I use my phone to send myself emails from one yes. Gmail account to another <laughs> to go, dearly is this or whatever you know the what thing I, is. You know what I do actually? When I'm running, I'll have the phone with me and I'll stop and I'll just record something or, and, or just dictate it so it just comes off in some sort of half comprehensible note, yes. which I can then <laughs> try and reinterpret. Yeah, the important thing is to capture the moments, I think, and be able to collate them in one place so that when you do get to sit down at your desk again that you go, oh, yeah, I had all these ideas. I try and do as well is if I need a particular emotion for a scene, I can jump around a bit. And like I've said, Scrivener allows you to do that with scenes. So if I'm feeling, if I need an angry scene and I'm really annoyed, that's when I'll sit down to write it. Or if I'm feeling down, I'll write the scene which is sadder. It's more those those difficult emotions like anger and sadness and fury and despair. And uh, it really helps if I can galvanise that emotion. And it also makes you think that it's not a waste of time feeling those things. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, 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 be on, 
and to observe them in the people around you, especially children who are much less guarded about their responses of any kind. And I find that wonderfully good fodder for a lot of characters. Because whilst we can be, we have our external needs, wants, desires, and conflicts, and we have our internal needs, wants, and desires, and conflicts. And with characters, of course, our job as writers is to get both of those operating against each other. And I think sometimes observing when people are not using their filter system, i.e. kids, is a great way of channeling their external and internal, don't you find, with four of them at home? (laughs) Yes, yes. Actually, less at home now, but uh, but yes, I get the point. (laughs) (laughs) What were the biggest challenges in writing The Watchful Wife? For instance, it sounds to me like you said the crime came first. So then do you work backwards to character? Do you struggle with plotting or structure? What sort of blind spots are you aware of that bring particular challenges for you to the writing process? I hate the first draft. Yeah. I hate any first draft. I hate writing any first draft. I hate, I feel like a sort of a cranky kid asked to do an exam. I just have to, but I'm, I'm tenacious. So I suppose that's what gets me through. And I've always talked to anyone who knows me. <laughs> Tenacious probably comes to mind pretty quickly. But for the first draft, I really have to force myself. So I have to sit down and say, you're not going to move for an hour and then you can have a treat if you stay focused for an hour and then do another hour and then do another hour. So for me, the worst thing is getting through the first draft. Once I've got through the first draft, it's so much easier. Even if the writing's not great, you've got clay to mould. I think the first first draft is almost like making the clay, building the canvas. And then from there, I find it so much easier and even enjoyable. Not always enjoyable, but I, as long as I've got something, even something bad, that gives me the confidence to rework it into something better. I'm with you. I call it the pouring the sand in the sand pit so you can make something out of it later. Yes, that's good. That's good. I like the sand pit one. I'll use that one. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) As I said earlier, you remain a practicing lawyer. We've touched on the fact you have a family. You're on the board of the Sydney Bad Crime Festival. You've judged numerous literary prizes. You and I met through facilitating at festivals and literary events, and you write novels. And you're on the Thursday Book Club. What structures do you need to put in place to strike a balance with so many areas competing and interests competing for your attention and your time? Oh, I think I just get into a mess and then have to try and work myself out of it. And whichever is most pressing and most panic inducing gets done. Are you an overcommitter? Yes. <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I look, to be honest, some of it's smoke and mirrors as well. So I don't work full time. I think a lot of women particularly assume that when they hear about another woman and who seems to be doing a lot of things, they assume that they're doing a lot of things all the time. And I think social media has only enhanced that. So I work in a job that can be sessional so I can pull back and I can do more, I can do less. And oh, I'm not always a great parent, maybe as well. <laughs> and uh, look, I've loved the facilitating, but it takes a lot of work as Meredith, case in point now. And I must say, I just love this sort of thing where I'm interviewed about me. <laughs> because 
because you get to, particularly by someone like you, Meredith, because I'm in such safe hands, you just feel really protected and engaged. And gosh, it's not the prep that you had to do. I just yeah. need to talk about myself and something I've done. So I suppose what I'm saying is there are things that are really good that I really enjoy. And at the moment, the new novel I'm writing has got some momentum, but I really need to, but things are slipping. The washing's not great. <laughs> And so things slip. I think that's it. And I'm trying to be a bit kinder to myself to say, okay, that slipped. Do what you need to. Because it's like Meredith, when a book's working, you don't want to let go in case the magic fails. And you just want to get it done, which is why perhaps a cave would be good for a little. Yeah. And that's why people like going on those residential retreats like Veruna, don't they? Because... Then you, you, all the pressure's taken off you to stop work, put a meal on the table or whatever the thing is. It's different for everybody. And I also think, like you're saying, when you're in the full momentum of a novel and things are coming together and they're working, there's a lot that's sitting in your head at the same time, isn't there? And it's really critical to get that stuff in your head onto the page in some way, shape or form. And too much time away from the writing can dilute that process, can't it? Yes, and I don't know what it's like for you, Meredith, but it's taken me a long time to say to myself, writing is your job. It may not earn a salary the way that work does. The money may not be guaranteed or clear, but it is a job and it's still hard. So there's still part of me that when I'm writing, when I just say just three hours is and then stop and when I don't, you just feel a bit naughty like you're doing something just a little bit too naughty, which which is problematic, I think, because we need writers, we need books, we need people to to interpret the world around us, and we need people to write stuff to entertain people because, as we all know, it's been a tough few years, and books are the basis for so many things, for relaxation, for conversations, for communities in book clubs as a basis for films, audio. And, uh, and so I suppose my, what I need to do is to keep telling myself that this is valid, that to write is valid and the worth is not necessarily a financial value, but it counts. I don't know how you feel, Meredith, because I know that you're, you're writing more full-time now than, than you have, if I'm still correct. Yeah, that's correct. I think there's some there's sort of almost an air of apology about it sometimes. It's what are you doing today? Is your husband, in my case, goes off to do his IT, top-end IT sales job. And then we go to yoga and then I'm going to sit and write. And it's just, wow, that sounds like a really ideal day. <laughs> even though <laughs> even though at your desk, your the yoga's important because otherwise I'd, I'd have no, I'd have back issues. <laughs> but like, carving out that writing time in between. I've still, like you, I've still got kids at school, so it's very precious to not undervalue that time and not apologise for the fact that, yeah, you're disappearing into the cave to, to, to hopefully create something worthwhile. I think that's right. I guess the other side of it, though, with all these competing aspects to your life, would you have it any other way? Does it feel, do you find mm. that all of those disparate activities feed your sensibility as a writer? Probably. I think so. When things are going fabulously with the writing, I think I just 
give it, I'd give everything just to do this all the time. But things don't always go well with the writing. And sometimes it's good to be able to be someone else during that time. So you park you, the writer, because it's really not flowing, and you return to you, the lawyer. But I do, I do think that there would be something lovely about full time writing and to do it with confidence and with the certitude that this is your job, this is important, and like an office job, you will sit down, you will do it, and then you will finish. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, not the life that most writers lead. With five novels under your belt now, do you see common themes that you come back to time and again? Because you write both contemporary stories and stories of historical significance. What do you think ties your oeuvre together? Yeah, thank you for that excellent question. I think think I'm interested in decision-making and decision-making that can be morally difficult or morally compromised. I'm interested in misunderstandings and people making assumptions that might not be correct. So... If anything, I think I'm looking for the grey. I'm looking for what is not so easily defined, not so easily categorised into this is good or this is bad, and that requires characters to make decisions that either require a great sacrifice or require some moral compromise. Interesting. And... You've also published a middle grade children's book earlier this year, Running with Ivan. It's a time slip novel about a 13-year-old boy who finds himself in Prague just before the beginning of World War II. My publisher and, in fact, also my agent both describe this to me. I don't know if they describe it to the entire world, but hey, it is now. (laughs) My publisher and, in fact, my agent both describe writing children's fiction when you're known as a writer of adult fiction as a palate cleanser the champagne sorbet between courses. Is that how you found the experience of writing Running with Ivan? Oh, look, I think when I started writing a book for kids, I thought, how hard can it be? It's half the length. It's for kids. And I think as everything, when I show some hubris, I normally have a bit of a trip over afterwards. It wasn't easy to write the book. Children are a particularly demanding audience. And I learned through my publishers that kids in particular need rules and need a book to make sense, even if it's about something completely fictional and imaginative. So to give an example, the book, Running with Ivan, is, as you said, a time slip. And Leo, who's my modern character, who's trying to make sense of a new family he finds himself part of, slips back in time to pre- World War II and then follows through the war and afterwards. And at first, I didn't have a particular device for him to slip through. I thought, what does it matter? He's here in the present and there in the past. But I had to work hard, particularly with my agent, on coming up with a device that was plausible and that made sense, both temporally and in terms of how it might work. So I came up with a music box, but that was down the track. And then when I got the uh, the contract with HarperCollins, thank you, HarperCollins, I, I was working with Lisa Berryman, who's a lovely, supportive publisher. Our first conversation went a bit like this. 
And she said the book was in the third person, more or less from Leo's point of view, but all third person. And Lisa said, really love the book, Suzanne. It's really great. How do you feel about the first person? Come on. <laughs> and her suggestion was to change it all to the first person. And you know what it's like, Meredith. You get a contract, particularly with someone like HarperCollins now. And Lisa Berryman, can we just say, one of the top children publishers in the country. And Lisa Berryman, that you say yes. (laughs) And so I sat down to rewrite it and she was absolutely right. The intimacy that comes with that story through the first person was really important and I think makes it more engaging for children. So look, it wasn't particularly a palate cleanser. It was a lovely experience publishing with Lisa and with Harper Collins, as it has been with Alan and Unwin for my adult novels. But I, no, I wouldn't call it a palate cleanser. I found it. I like appearing at schools. I like doing school visits. I like talking to kids. I get enormous satisfaction from hearing a child say, This is my favorite book at the moment. And I think, particularly, it's a book, it has female characters or girl characters, but it's mostly about boys and boys' adventure. And Boys, I understand and probably know, don't read as much as girls. So to have a room full of boys, I had 400 boys at a school the other day, engaged in adventure that's about them, that's about boys, even though, and then once they know it's about them, then you can weave the girl characters in. So yes, look, very satisfying, but also tricky to have written. So processing now the joys and challenges of writing a middle grade novel, are you intending to go back into that space? Are you intending to write another? Yeah, look, I've got an idea and I've done a few chapters, so I'm just going to let this sit for a while and uh, see where it goes. But I do think my understanding is that parents and think booksellers are crying out for books that will particularly engage boys. And and I, yeah, I'm keen to continue that, I think. Mm. You're about to release The Watchful Wife on July 4. Your last novel, The Deceptions, was released on the brink of COVID lockdowns. How does that change your feelings about embarking on the publicity and marketing <laughs> tour that goes with releasing a new book? Now, fingers crossed, so, with no challenges of that variety. When you say on the brink of COVID, it was actually on the very first day where everything was closed. Like, it all had blur. Yeah. It was like, oh, I've got so many events happening. You won't believe how many things I'm going to be doing. And it's everywhere. It's in Big W. It's in Kmart. It's in Target. It's in all the indies and Dimmicks and the rest of the clothes. You name it. And then, of course, <laughs> I'd said to my agent, what can possibly go wrong? It's great. The book's been edited. Great cover. The title's good. The selling's great. Publicity's going gangbusters. What could go wrong? Of course. We had our answer pretty quickly, which was the lockdown. Yeah, I can't say I'm not nervous. And it's a little bit different, I think, to when Ivan came out, which was earlier this year, because boys, kids' stories have a different publicity journey. And so you do different things. And obviously, there's not going to be so many adult events because it's for children. So you're going going to schools and library workshops. So this is the first adult book I've had out since The Deceptions in COVID. And yeah, look, I suppose I've been trying to work out, okay, how much can I do to make sure this book goes well? How much can I help this little book fly? And on the other hand, I'm thinking, this doesn't happen very much. 
enjoy it. And also I'm thinking you've got specialists. And my, my publicist, Sam Ryan, has been fantastic, as is the marketer, Sarah Barrett. And what you need to do is trust other people as well. And I've trusted Jane Polkman is a magnificent publisher, and I've trusted her and my editors to get the book to the stage it's at now. And I suppose what I've got to say to myself is, okay, it was really difficult last time because no one quite knew what to do with a worldwide lockdown and COVID. But this time, trust your publisher, trust what's going on, do what you can, but don't panic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was devastating for so many authors because that particular time of year as well, which was March, is a massive time of year for books in this country because it's that lead into Mother's Day, you're out of summer. So there was a lot of people who were very excited about their books coming out and, and were blindsided. I wonder though, for those listeners who are wondering about what they can actively control about marketing and publicity and building relationships with readers, what has your experience taught you? Do you find it valuable to have a social media presence and to have a commitment like the Thursday Book Club? So the, the Thursday Book Club is a online book club that I set up basically to address the COVID issue. When the book came out and, and there was no, nowhere to go, I was suggested that I do something to, to make a community to introduce the book. And so I started this half an hour online book club, eight o'clock every Thursday on Zoom, come late, leave early if you like, don't read anything in particular, just tell us what you've been reading. And look, I suppose what it did, it's given me a bit of a community actually. And sometimes that's often or always that gives me a sense of satisfaction because there's a number of people for whom I think it's quite important. And particularly during the lockdown, there were people living alone uh, for whom this was the closest thing I can describe it as is it's like a, not a, it's not a church because it's not religious, but just as you know that a church will be there, and if you go, great, but if you don't, it'll still be there, and you can just come in as you like. I wanted to be reliable, and so it has a newsletter that goes with it once a week, and so I wanted people to think they could come if they wanted to, but they don't have to, and I think you know, I quite like that, like living in Sydney, because I could do heaps of stuff, even if I don't. And in terms of the community, yes, look, I think the newsletter in particular has been helpful. It takes a lot of work and I think you've got to put to one side. This is, again, the thing of it's hard to put a financial value on yourself as a creative. So you need to just say, this is what I'm doing, whether it's a service, whether it's a promotion, whether whatever, but this is what being creative now entails. It entails not only being in your garret but also being out and interacting with your readers. I think readers want more now. And you would know this, Meredith, because you're very effective with it. Readers want to know you and they want to engage with you. And even if you're not that sort of person, even if you're, you'd prefer just to never come out of your hole, there are very few exceptions where that doesn't affect your publicity or your marketing. And it's and what it also does is it keeps you up to date with technology. It keeps you going so you don't fall behind. And I've never been technologically in enthusiastic about knowing the, the latest thing. When you, It's like jogging in a pack. Um, you don't have to jog fast, but as long as you keep up with the pack, you're doing all right. And that's what I feel 
is one of the advantages of social media. Scrolling is a disadvantage. And for some reason, Kate Middleton is mostly appears on my feed. And I need to, and multiple births, like people who have had four babies at once. And not I, Elon Musk and Keanu Reeves and Brad Pitt. No, no. Multiple births, Kate Middleton and any of the royal children. And I oh. need to stop myself from scrolling <laughs> and focus on the work. <laughs> With all this experience behind you now, what observations would you offer emerging writers about writing and setting ourselves up for success? I suppose because the, the, the advice I was earlier given is don't give up the day job, not because the writing won't work, but because it puts a lot of pressure on the writing to be not just your creative pursuit, but also your financial necessity. So I think keep a job. If, you possibly, if you're able to financially, part-time has always worked really well for me. In my earlier job, the Refugee Review Tribunal, I'd you got to set your hearings at whatever time, or whatever time you liked, really. So I would, and I was sing, I had a single parent at the time, so I'd drop the kids to their daycare or their school, and then I'd go into the city, find a cafe that wasn't very popular, so people didn't mind you staying there, do two hours then, and the laptop is your office, isn't it? Then I'd go to work, prepare the hearing, do the hearing, stay back later, have the kids once or twice a week babysat. So the reason I'm saying that is that I think it's important to try and write every day if you can. And I know that a lot of people are going to say, well, I just can't. But if it's possible to have a career or have a job which is somewhat flexible, so you can either shift the hours later or shift the hours early if you write better later and just do something, like just an hour a day, I think, for me, is more beneficial than six hours at a stretch once a fortnight. Mm, great advice. Suzanne Leal, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the Convo Couch at Rights for Women. Congratulations on The Watchful Wife. I really enjoyed it. It's such an intriguing page turner and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today about the book, about your life, about the writing process. You can find out more about Suzanne on her website, www.suzanneleal.com and follow her on socials at Suzanne Leal Author. And The Watchful Wife will be available at your local library and at all your favourite bookstores from July 4th. Again, thanks, Suzanne. Oh, thank you, Meredith. That's been delightful. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. Hold up. 